founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown. A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of A Bit Lit. I'm Tom Harrison and I'm leading a discussion today on Afro Ben and The Rover and other plays as well, other works by Ben. And it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome two world experts on Afro Ben to talk to us today. So um, without further ado, I'll um, ask them both to introduce themselves. So Claire, would, would you mind to uh, starting please? Sure. Um, I'm Claire Bowditch. I'm at Loughborough University and I am one of the general editors of the Cambridge Ben. And Elaine? I'm Elaine Hobby. I'm also at Loughborough University where I've been since 1988 and I'm another of the general editors of the Cambridge Ben. Okay, thank you. So um, yes, the Cambridge Ben is out. When exactly is it out again? Just... The first volume will appear in uh, about two months time, so January to February uh, 2021. Right. And the whole thing will be out by about 2025. Right, okay, so 2021 to 2025. Um, okay, so let's, let's start with um, a discussion about the Rover because the Rover as a play is probably the one that um, uh, students and a lot of scholars know most uh, about Ben. Um, so, what is it about the rover as a play that is so interesting and seems to capture people's imaginations and continue to interest audiences? I don't know whether uh, Elaine or Claire, you want to, to take this one up to start with. Um, I think a very good way into the play is to recognise that it's her sixth play. Um, the first five have been performed uh, and published with her name on the title Everyone knows that they're hers. And then when she writes the Rover, mm. she has it performed and indeed published without her name. Um, so there's something going on there, something about this play that is additionally or especially risky or problematic. Now, quite quickly, it does become known it's hers. By the time of her next play, It's a Patient Fancy, the following year, um, that's that's advertised. It says on its title page that it's by the author of the Rover, Mrs. A. Ben. So it it doesn't it isn't kept secret for long, but it's kept secret uh, to start with. And um, if you look at the 1677 edition, there are lots of things about the printing of that play which are odd. One of the things that's odd is if you turn to its last page, uh, you see on it what she calls a postscript, in which she says this play had been sooner in print but for a report about the town, made by some either very malicious or very ignorant, that was Tomaso altered. Mm. So people are saying that this isn't really um, the author's play, 
it's the play, it's just an adaptation. There's no real creativity here. There's no originality here. And um, so what the author, who still hasn't named herself, says is, I've decided not to let people know who wrote this because there's an argument about whether it's really mine. And if you look down towards the bottom of that uh, postscript, you can see just three lines up from the bottom, she's talking about the critics and how the critics always try to take control of things and usurp um, uh, and feel that authors are trying to usurp their dominion as if critics have got the right to say what plays are, not, not playwrights. And she talks about the critics being critical, especially of our sex, uh, so of women. And um, so that sense that we can have, we, we see from her, that there's something about this play that's being seen or as, as, as um, reprehensible. Mm. And a first place to, to start would be that it's an adaptation. But um, most restoration comedies are adaptations, or many of them are. Um, by and large, that's simply accepted as part of the creativity. Mm. But Ben isn't allowed to be seen as creative if she's also making an adaptation. I'm not saying that, that none of the male playwrights were attacked that way they were, but clearly she feels that it's being a woman writer that is making this, this particularly um, problematic. Now, I wonder on the other hand, whether it isn't really the question of, of adaptation that um, is interesting her, or that makes her think that the play is one that she doesn't necessarily want to have her name on to start with. Um, it's quite an easy passport to say, oh, it's because the, there's going to be a quarrel about a bad adaptation. And people have tended to assume that that's a statement of fact, that there really was a storm about it being adaptation. Maybe there was. We've got no evidence of it, apart from what Ben says here. Certainly plenty about the play that as a woman writer in the period, you might think, hmm, maybe I should try the waters a bit with this one uh, because maybe I've gone a bit close to the bone here in, in what I'm showing. So the most obvious example of that would be the thing which I think strikes many readers um, when they first read it. Certainly is what struck me when I first read it back in 1979 or 80, which is the, the play's treatment of rape. Mm. Twice in the play, the good girl, Florinda, Florinda who thinks so well of gentlemen and is sure that if she's in love with a man and wants to marry him, that all will be fine. Twice in the play, that good girl is threatened with rape. Uh, the first occasion, there she is in the garden, um, in her nightclothes, ready to elope. And in stumbles a drunken fool who just happens to be the rip-roaring, sword-wielding star of the play, Wilmore. Mm. Um, and I remember when I first read this back in 1979 or 80, and I was working at a rape crisis centre at the time, and seeing what Wilmore says um, at the beginning of this <laughs> passage, he describes Lorinda as a delicate, shining wench and suggests that she'll have sex with him um, as long as uh, I'll not boast who t'was obliged to me. And when she says, I, this, is, this is not what I want, um, he talks about, but yeah, but if this goes to court, 
a judge, were he young and vigorous and saw those eyes of thine, would know it was they gave the first blow. That you being a woman, being an attractive woman, you're asking for it. And indeed, he goes on to say, uh, when she says, I'll cry murder, rape, or anything, if you do not instantly let me go. Now, as a good girl, of course, she might try murder and she might try rape because she doesn't really, she's not in a comfortable space here um, in, in, in any sense, even in objecting to what's going on. And, and Wilmore's response, a rape? Come, come, you, you lie, you baggage, you lie. What, I'll warrant you'd fain have the world believe that you were not as so forward as I. Why at this time of night was your cobweb door set open, dear spider? But to catch flies, that sense of the woman out on the streets, or in fact, as she is here, in her garden, is asking for it. Mm. The, the thought that that is there on the stage in 1677, as well, being, as, well as being very much part of, of current discussions about rape and the problem of rape, was mm. to me absolutely devastating. And I think may well have been part of what Ben thought, hmm, maybe as a woman writer, I don't want to have my name on this until I see how it goes with the audience because this is, this is uh, pretty devastating. And then, of course, at the end of the play, famously, terrifyingly, uh, that sword-measuring scene, where you know, the phallic sword of restoration drama mm-hmm. is, is suddenly there with the men measuring who's got the longest. Yeah, and, and that's and essentially drawing lots for, for the woman, isn't it? That's the, yeah. that's the, the purpose of the scene. Yeah, yeah, it's who'll go first. Mm. The, the man who will go first in her gang rape mm. will be the man with the longest sword. And again, one of those things that's really quite devastating when you think about it, um, the man with the longest sword is the woman's brother mm. who doesn't realise that it's her and he takes her off, Don Pedro takes her off to go first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have suddenly enter Valeria. Now, Valeria is Ben's invention. Uh, Valeria, uh, the cousin of Helena and Florinda, the two heroines of the play, Valeria isn't there in the source. Mm. Ben invents her, and she invents her so that she can enter at this moment and save her cousin from rape Mm -hmm. by misdirecting Pedro uh, so that he doesn't realise, take take off Florinda's mask, realise that that this is his sister um, and get her into, into a world of trouble. But the, the, the possibility that if men get together as a group and see a vulnerable woman, that this could result in them deciding together who to rape and who's, you know, who's going to go first. Mm-hmm. Um, as a woman writer, you might have thought it was a bit dangerous having that. Yeah. And there's a, there's a social um, dimension to it as well, isn't there? Because one of the characters says something like, uh, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but about, I only thought I was ruffling a harlot. And, yeah. and, and once Florinda's identity is known, then suddenly the behaviour that they've exhibited becomes problematic, but not until, until that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. And, and so that whole aspect of victim blaming that we see in the play and the very unpleasant sexual dynamics that go on are horribly um relevant even today but something I, I think we should also add is that the play is at least notionally a comedy isn't it and it's set during a time of carnival 
And um, so I suppose the question, and uh, Claire, Elaine, either of you could, could answer this. Um, what is the, what, what, what is the, uh, the, the challenge of staging the Rover today? Or why does the Rover work? Because it is a comedy, uh, but it has this unpleasant um, uh, undercurrent to it as well. How do modern productions uh, and modern readers sort of reconcile those two elements or do they? Yeah, uh, Cl Claire and I uh, went and saw the RSC's production um, by, by Loveday Ingram back in 2016. Yeah, 2016, 2017, yeah. And, and that precisely did the carnival, the excitement of carnival, um, very, very engagingly. Um, and also the sword fighting. Mm. Um, every time these men move and turn around, their swords are out. <laughs> and, you know, as I've just been saying, that has its, its denouement in mm. the final scene. But their swords are out. They're, so the, the physical agility... The, the sheer physical skills um, are there all the time. And also, if you're going to dunk another man who thinks of women just in sexual terms in the sewer and have him crawling out of the sewer, that, that has a certain kind of um, comic uh, <laughs> of course, yeah. uh, feel, I think. Um, and the, the play was enormously successful. And again, I don't think this is necessarily always recognised because we have very few rec records of what was on stage until a few years into the 18th century. Mm. So there are you know, a few dozen examples of wh where we know what was on stage. And for something like Four Nights in Five, we've no idea what was staged. Mm. So there's almost no performance record of the Rover um, up until 1700, half a dozen examples maybe. Mm. But from 1700 for the next 50 years, it's on stage every, every season. Mm. It wouldn't have suddenly started to be on stage every season if it hadn't been on stage every season for the previous 23 years. Mm -hmm. you know, it's an absolutely stock play. It, it's, it, it's one of those that the company know will bring an audience, the people will laugh, they'll enjoy it, they'll enjoy the, uh, the, the sword fighting, uh, they'll enjoy probably some of the exposure of the women's bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it must already have been so well known by the time of Ben's second most uh, long-lasting play, The Emperor of the Moon, mm -hmm. which was first staged in 1687. Florinda, the good girl who is twice almost raped in the play, mm -hmm. Florinda suddenly walks into the middle of The Emperor of the Moon, which it, it, she's not a character who belongs in that play. Uh, she has no function in that play other than to walk in and say that if a man uh, be, uh, if, if a man is a man of honour, cousin, when a maid protects her innocence. So Florinda has never learnt that a man of honour is not to be trusted. Florinda is That's still like, stuck there. Ten years later, just <laughs> asserting the same thing. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating that uh, a... Um, that an actor, sorry, a playwright is able to bring in another character from another play as, you know, and their star power, their character yes. star power is the thing, you know, it's something that has an impact on, on, on something new. That's very interesting. Um, I think that's, that's the kind of evidence, and we might talk about this a little bit later, but that's the sort of evidence that we are having to use um, because of the absence of performance records. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the editing, especially, of course, of the drama, um, having to look around to see who is referring to Ben more on the periphery, if you like. 
um, has been a really important factor in our coming to understand, oh, actually, they did, uh, these plays did go on being recognised or talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are examples, for instance, of a later play, The Lucky Chance, which is almost contemporary with The Emperor of the Moon, mm-hmm. where characters turn up in um, a catalogue of bachelors at this pretend auction mm-hmm. uh, and various of her characters who are um, not exactly, I don't know, let's say attractive mm-hmm. uh, possibilities as, as matches mm-hmm. turn up in, in this catalogue, mm-hmm. um, which wouldn't be terribly meaningful if the plays didn't have some resonance or you know have some mm-hmm. extended performance. So it's, it's been really interesting seeing that kind of um, theatrical outreach yeah yeah and and uh, characters and ideas and themes running through Ben's other works yeah I yeah I I think it's interesting that she seems to be uh one of the most prominent recorders of her own uh you know a sort of her own success and her own legacy and I love this idea that maybe that whole thing about um uh, adaptation the, the accusation about adaptation might have been a confection in order to to make the rover a bit more sort of notorious um yeah. yes that's 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 brilliant thank you so much for that um I, th- I think this is a nice bridge into um other texts that ben is responsible for because the rover and possibly some of her prose works like Orinoco are the ones that are still quite prominent on reading lists today and amongst readers. But she's got a wealth of other texts. Uh, and so I was just wondering, would um, you be able to take on maybe one of those texts and just tell us a little bit about them, why you th- think it's interesting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, she, as you've just said, there are recurrent themes, of course, running through um, so much of her drama and to some extent her, her prose works especially. Um, but I think she's quite interesting in that she's not just doing one thing at a time. And so um, because we've been with the rover, it might be quite useful to go across to its second part, mm. which she um, is uh, publishes, I think, 82, it's performed 81. But when she publishes it, she dedicates it to the Duke of York, James. Uh, who at that point is uh, still heir presumptive uh, to the throne, but with a very much uh, more secure claim than he'd had a few years previously. And in that she, um, in that dedication, she implies that James thought very well of the rover. And I think, again, we've got uh, an image there where she uh, actually says, you were pleased to have for his second uh, you know, the, the concern, sorry, that you were pleased to have for his second appearance, so, so to have Wilmore back on stage um, as a wanderer too, like James, um, distressed, beloved, though unfortunate and ever constant to loyalty. So she's doing this display, if you like, of, um, of her own loyalty to the Stuart succession. At the same time as she's uh, in another play, having a joke with uh, audience in a prologue about her having shifted allegiances. So contemporary with the second part of the Rover is The False Count, which is just a glorious play, um, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But in that prologue, she's saying, on a, the other hand, um, our author, as you'll find it, written story, 
has hitherto been a most wicked Tory. But now to the joy of the brethren be it spoken, our sister's vain mistaking eyes are open. So she's she's now on the side of the Whigs rather than on the side of the Tories. But of course, she's not really. She's so well known as a Stuart loyalist that there's a little bit of teasing going on here. Um, but the the relevance of that to the play is really quite interesting. So in the Rover, at least uh, according to James, the uh, Duke of York, the Cavaliers are wonderful. They're wonderful examples of, you know, what's going on on the continent uh, during the 1650s. And of course, you know, hugely complimentary and very representative. Um, <laughs> but uh, you've, you've also got this uh, in the false count, this rewarding of the lowborn laborer. Mm. So what happens in, in the false count is that a nobleman and a merchant employ a chimney sweep to pretend to be a lord in order that they can, these the nobleman and the merchant can escape their arranged marriages and marry, uh, marry as they choose. Uh, and William is kind of key to attracting one of the undesirable women that that they're due to be involved with, due to marry. And uh, the section of the play that we want to draw your attention to specifically is the play's end. Because all the way through this nobleman and this merchant think that they are running the show. You know, they, they're paying William to conduct their trick and and so on um and in the play's very final scene what you have is the revelation that William has actually been running his own plot Mm. the whole time and he has been so successful in that plot that he's managed to both marry and consummate importantly his marriage to the upstart woman that nobody else wanted to marry uh and that he has managed to secure her portion. None of that was ever on the cards for the the nobleman, if you like. Um, but William succeeds in arranging uh, matters for himself. I think that's actually what he says. So on the screen, uh, you can see that there's a little bit of outrage going on where um, the father of the upstart woman, uh, Francisco, is saying, you know, my cousin is, is my daughter cousin. He's absolutely outraged by this. Mm. Uh, and William is uh, very, very self-confident, quoting Isabella the upstart back to herself when he says, you know, hang titles, t'was, my sweet se- uh, t'was myself you loved, my, uh, my amiable sweet self. Um, and he's, you know, honest William, the chimney sweeper, I heard your father desired you, uh, desired to marry you to a tradesman. You were for a don, which she was, and to please you both, you see how well I have managed matters. Now, it's kind of structurally very interesting as a play, but also um, it's a farce. And there's an awful lot of physical comedy. So even a little bit further down the exchange, you can see that William goes to kiss his new wife, Isabella, and he blacks her face with his soot. Uh, and the soot of his you know, basket the soot that's presumably about his person. Um, but the really key thing here in this exchange is that Ben kind of shows the superficiality of the kinds of titles 
the displays of nobility and wealth. Uh, and that it's actually very possible to, towards the end of the exchange, you can see here, um, to pass for what anyone may please to make you, really. Mm. Uh, and so as long as you've got that kind of patronage, which I think is quite interesting, um, mm. as a woman writer who's only relatively recently started dedicating her work to people, um, you've, got, you've got a way in the world, if you like. Mm. And your birth is not necessarily what's going to determine things for you, but she's saying that as a Stuart loyalist. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, or in the same year even. Um, so yes, she, she is definitely someone who's interested in exploring or coming back to similar ideas, but she's also not someone who's doing that consistently, even mm -hmm. in, in the course of the same year or responding ostensibly to the same political events. So yeah, do, do you have anything, Elaine, that you want to draw attention to there or? I, I think the, uh, I mean, all I would say is like, agree with Claire completely, that I think that every time one thinks one's come up with an answer to what it is that Ben's up to or what she's interested in, um, if you just look across at other things, either in the same play or in another work, you can see that, that there's enormous complexity and teasing, constant mm. teasing of the reader, of the audience to try and get them to keep thinking. Um, mm. Yeah. Great. So part of, part of the interest of Ben is in her creation of an authorial persona, but she doesn't stay constant in the way she portrays that persona. It's a sort of woman for all, all seasons sort of thing, you know, mm. uh, or is it the opposite? You know, it's, it's that sort of thing, isn't it, where you've got she she's sort of aware of her status as a as a female writer and has to perform that in different contexts yeah i think that's that's true um i also think that of course she she's writing commercially she needs to be doing enough that's different every time that people are going to continue to come to see her place because that's a significant source of her of her income mm -hmm. um so the innovation is is partly capitalist. It's, co it's partly commercial as well as um, you know. She, how boring would it be to be writing the same you know versions of exactly the same thing for twenty years? Deeply yeah. boring. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I just didn't want us to neglect, if you like, that other very important context in, in terms yeah. of what she's up to. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I also think that um, sometimes. Um, I think because of the, the, the dominance of the novel as a genre, there's a narrative that's applied to Ben, which is, you know, she does this unfortunate commercial thing for a while as a playwright, and then she starts doing what's serious. Mm. And she writes Arunico, uh, she writes her other fiction. Um, and one of the things I think is fundamentally true well, there are many things, many reasons why that's a stupid argument. But one of them is I think that what she does is she takes from her experience of the stage, which is that you can use the fact that there is no one speaking for the author. That you have all of these characters and all these events on stage interacting in various ways without necessarily being told. And therefore, the author stands here. So she, she takes that... Um, in some ways, indecipherability, or certainly indecidability mm. of performance, and finds a way of writing fiction that does something similar. 
So again, what you have in, with stupid readings of Arunico um, is an attempt to see the narrator as speaking for Ben. Mm. Whereas what the narrator is, is Ben's invention, mm. who, is, who says outrageous things and who thinks that she is the only person of any interest. <laughs> um, whereas actually what's all around the narrator in Arunico is showing what's wrong with the narrator's perspective mm. and, and, and way of seeing the world. And I think that this is this is true again and again, almost uh, so she literally picks up Florinda from uh, the rover and, and, and drops her into the, the Emperor of the Moon. But uh, as Claire's just been saying, in the same moment, she can be writing different things, which in some sense start from the same premise, but then go off in very different directions. Mm. Well, on that note, I think this is, again, another nice bridge into um, the works itself that you've been uh, been labouring over for the, the, the last few years. Well, starting in one position and then running off in different directions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't mean to make the analogy too close uh, at all, of course. Um, but would you mind just telling us a, a little bit about the works? Because it, I think it'd be good to give um, viewers a sense of... What, what the breadth of uh, Ben's writings um, is. And also, if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the interesting problems or things that you've encountered as, as you've been working on this project. So I don't, I don't know if you, you'd like to start, Elaine. Okay, so we have eight volumes. Um, one of those volumes is about to appear um, and it is nearly a thousand pages long. So when I say eight volumes, I don't mean uh, a thousand pages in total. I mean something approaching 8,000 pages in total, probably. Um, there are 20 plays. Mm. Uh, there are also um, a, a number of fictions, including, of course, Arunico. Um, uh, there's a volume on, of her letters and nonfiction translations. She's also a translator. She's a very fine poet. One of the volumes is entirely her poetry. It's, mm. it's very diverse. Fortunately, Claire and I are not only only two of the four general editors, we're also only two of the more than 20 editors. Mm. So although we're constantly responding to uh, what people are doing, whilst also doing our own editing, um, there are a lot of people involved in, mm. in producing this. And how does that work? Do you have to, uh, before you start on a project like this, do you have to decide on a an approach to editing that everyone stays consistent with, or do you let people have uh, a degree of license we we have our principles which were tested and revised and tested again and revised and so on and so forth um but we tried quite hard to keep those as to as few as possible mm -hmm. um because of course editors are going to have different priorities um they're going to have very different material circumstances that, that you know that they're working with in terms of um what they're given really mm. um with some of ben's poetry for instance we're pretty sure that she quite closely supervised the um the printing of at least some of um the volume that's called poems upon several occasions mm. but other editors have plays particularly that were clearly printed in a rush they were printed cheaply um by compositors some of them who were not necessarily very experienced in setting plays so the idea of having one rule for all of Ben's work 
didn't help us to achieve part of what we wanted, which was to give the very firm and proper sense, we think, of just the range of who she was published and printed by. Mm. And so to make everything uniform would have erased quite a lot of that. Now, of course, you remove inconsistencies where they're going to cause problems. But um, in terms of the principles not having any room in them, that's, we, we wanted to avoid that mm. um, quite a lot. So um, we were also, of course, much helped by the fact that Restoration English is much closer to modern English than Renaissance English. So we, um, we didn't have quite as many puzzles um as, as some other editors might have done mm. yeah and so, some of the consistency has come from the fact that um all of our editors start from a text that either claire or i or usually claire and i working together have produced for them mm. and we've done that on the basis of having ourselves claire and i ourselves collated copies perhaps a dozen perhaps 20 copies of the same text in different libraries, finding stop press corrections, being able to advise, therefore, our editors of what differences there might be between different copies, of where uh, an early reader might have thought, oh, she's borrowing from this play and written in the margin where they think, oh, she's got this speech from somewhere else, this sort of thing. Um, so there's a consistency in that sense that what they get from us is, uh, is information about the original text. Mm. And, and consistency in that our instruction to the editors is that their goal is to try to put the modern reader in a position akin to the original reader or original audience of this text. Mm. So what they've constantly got to do is to try to work out what is it likely that somebody in 1677 would have made of this? What did they know about? What to them would have been mysterious? What to them would have been exciting and so on? And mm. provide information about that for the reader. Mm. Well, uh, you've, you've mentioned that very important process of collation, which by the sound of it is the, the bedrock on which everything else is, is built. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about what collation is and what you need to do in order to collate all these texts together? So we're generally quite fortunate in that um, with much of Ben's work, there is only one lifetime edition. So usually we are just collating multiple copies of one edition. And what that um, meant was that we uh, did some consulting, largely Elaine, but um, we did some consulting uh, with other people who had um, required, you know, had the need for collation. And Martin Butler gave us um, a very fine tip, which we then employed, um, which was to use acetate or transparencies to then uh, have a copy of the original, in our case, um, you know, only often text on the transparencies, and then to quite literally just go lay the acetates on top of the real book and play spot the difference. Um, <laughs> Effectively, so that was the process that we used. Um, uh, we've collated in North America, we've collated in the UK, Australia, and um, France as well. I went across to Paris and, and New Zealand, and, and New Zealand, of course. Um, so there, there've been quite a bit of travel involved, um, but yeah, as you as you said, that is pretty much the bedrock on which um, the the edition is built, and we found very many more uh, press variants than I think either of us was expecting. 
when we first embarked on on the activity which has been um really quite foundational in uh, adjusting our thinking of how involved ben might or might not have been in the production of our own works yeah so press variants are as i understand it changes that are made to the the actual uh, the type when it's being printed during the the actual printing process that's is that is that sort of right yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, what you've got in those in those days, of course, labour is cheap, paper's expensive. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that um, a trial copy is run off of what will end up being perhaps eight pages of the book once it's mm-hmm. folded up, a big sheet of paper folded up, mm-hmm. um, and the press is continuing to make more copies of that, mm. whilst someone might as Claire's been referring to with some of Ben's poetry, it might be the author, it might be somebody employed by the press, is checking it and looking for errors of the kind that any of us look for when we're checking our own work. Mm. And if the person doing the proofreading thinks that the error is really a problem, they quite literally stop the press, um, uh, take a, um, open up the metal jaws that are around the way the whole thing has been set and use little tools to tease out individual letters and replace them with other individual letters to make a correction. And they then continue to print in the corrected version. Mm. But they don't throw away the already uh, printed sheets because paper's expensive. Mm. So when you buy a book then, or when you look today at a book that was printed then, you might have the uncorrected version of some of the pages in it whilst you've got the corrected version of others and of course what our responsibility as editors is to try to work out um, certainly the variety of the ways in which a reader might have encountered it like with all its errors but Mm. also insofar as we can which do we think is correct Mm. yeah and who is whose authority is the the most important in in a particular situation I imagine yeah, yeah. Um, have you got any particular um, instances you'd like to, to give just as a sort of snapshot uh, of, of the sort of problems that you faced? Um, uh, perhaps uh, I'm looking at uh, one of your notes here about uh, something that's set in verse and prose and, and how that sort of sort of works and why that's important for modern readers. So um, just a few minutes ago, I referred to um, some editors being given or being have. Uh, being given different challenges from each other, let's say, um, as a result of the circumstances in which their original text was printed. And the example that you can see on your screen is one of Widow Ranter, which was both published and performed after Ben's death. So we know in that case that she could not have supervised uh, the the publication of the text. And what you have... um, throughout much of the 1690 quarto, the first edition, is um, either a printer or a bookseller seeking, we think, to make economies, to do this as cheaply as possible. And therefore, as Elaine's indicated, because of the price of paper, to use as little paper as possible. Uh, The play is mostly in prose, but it has enormous stretches of verse which the 1690 printer largely set as prose because of course you use less paper Mm. to do that and as you can see in the example the 
particular challenge for the editor of the Widow Ranter was working out where these lines of blank verse fall and and reinstating them, you know, either imposing them or reinstating them, depending on uh, whether they were present in the manuscript or not. But so that's that was a a particular challenge for um, for the editor of that play, uh, and as you can probably see from the um, instance on the left hand side, she's done an admirable job with it. Um, but yeah, if if you uh, had the time to look in detail at those two passages side by side, um, firstly, if you read it aloud, you can hear its iambic pentameter. Mm. Um, that's you know pretty clear, regular iambic pentameter. Uh, so it gives status to the uh, exchanges between the Native American Indian king and Bacon. Um, and this is true of various places in the play where the whole meaning of the scene is changed by the fact that it's verse rather than mm. prose. But if you look down the right-hand column of Bacon's speech, mm. you can see that the, the third line of his speech, starting the word nor, and then two lines be below that, the line starting and, and two lines below that, the line starting yet. Mm. If you were to look across at the example from the 1690 printing, you can see that nor, and, and yet all have initial capitals on them. Yeah. So you can see that probably the printer is working from a manuscript that has got those initial capitals in um, and he's um, kept them, um, mm. even though they're not necessarily grammatically right. Um, and we found both with this play and with the final play of Ben's that was performed, uh, The Younger Brother, again, performed some years after her death, um, that um, sometimes the first clue you have that something is actually verse, not prose, um, is those initial capitals suddenly mm. appearing where they, where they don't belong. That, that requires a real eye, doesn't it? Eye for detail. And I imagine uh, you... you constantly faced with little problems like this all the time something Next that problems. yeah something uh, well in, yeah interesting problems at that but the um something that interests me is uh when looking at modern editions and we see stage directions in uh, you know the famous italics and then there is the stage directions in italics but with the very revealing square brackets around them that indicate that that's a an, a later editor's edition um, that obviously implies decisions on your part as, as, as editors. So what sort of things do you do in order to put those square brackets in? What sort of uh, uh, things need to be satisfied in order for you to, to make an intervention like that? Um, sometimes we have been much helped by the state of the first edition and specifically the um, presence or otherwise of dashes. Mm. So uh, the more we edited, the more we came to realise that although a side is often, not always, but often given in the uh, copy text, the allowed instruction, shift back to everybody can hear me now, isn't. Usually, I think there might be one or two instances in Ben's entire works, but generally it's it's represented with a dash. Uh, for modern readers, that's not what a dash does. But clearly for 17th century readers, there was a cue there. So using this example, um, we alerted our editors to the fact that a, da a dash might mean 
a shift back to allowed. It might not. It might mean some other kind of action happening, but it's it's a useful prompt to then consider the rest of the exchange. Could these characters in principle have heard what happens or should they not have heard to make sense of something that happens later? Mm. But but the visual cue is is there for consideration usually mm. um, in that sense. Mm. And of course, the other thing that we did uh, a lot was argue. <laughs> so uh, the whole process of publication of the editing isn't one of sending off the, the base text to the editor and saying, can get on with it. Mm. We had um, samples of editing from our editors about every three months. Uh, Claire and I did the same thing, submitted our own sample editing to, to one another and to the other general editors about every three months. And then we argue mm. uh, and say, no, you're quite wrong. That isn't a side because look, if you look five speeches on, it's clear that so-and-so heard what, what was being said or mm. alternatively, mm, you've indicated that that's a side and it could be, but it isn't necessarily. Mm. Um, probably you need to put in a little commentary note on the page that indicates that it's possible, you know, other interpretations of this moment are, are possible, if you, if mm. you like. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so... Um... It's so revealing to, uh, you know, a, a sort of lay reader like myself that um, a lot of what you're, you're, you're saying is um, that the addition that we've got in front of us is only the tip of the iceberg. And then underneath it, there's this huge mass of work that you've done on collation, consulting other uh, other editions and also you know uh, how might we put it euphemistically spirited disagreement with each other in order to get uh, what you think is the you know the the right text and yeah. that's of course that's that's an element of the process that is entirely lost on people that just see the the, the monumental hole at the end of it isn't it you know it's <laughs> the, you know the thing that you've been working towards is just a part of uh you know the work that you put into it Really interesting. Thank you. Um, right. I'm, I'm conscious of time. So um, I think we'll have to draw this to a close, but really, really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Um, I hate to do this in a, like a, a one minute thing, but um, if I could just have uh, in your closing comments, you know, maybe a sort of 30 second soundbite. Uh, what does literature mean to you? And we'll, maybe we'll start with you, Elaine. That's all right. Immediately, joy. It's the joy of being taken to a place where I see things differently from how I would see them naturally, immediately myself. Uh, it's being able to learn to understand and to see the world from a different place. And what about you, Claire? Um, I think possibly inflected by global pandemic um, <laughs> and therefore doing some consideration of how literature works with perhaps our STEM cousins um, at this point. Probably it means three things to me, uh, exploration, innovation, and reflection. Great. I mean, what, what a great way to end. Joy, exploration, innovation, reflection. We can't do much better than that, can we? So um, thank you once again for thank what you, has been a really fascinating talk and uh, best of luck with getting the the final bits of, the, uh, of your uh, volumes through the press and all that sort of thing final bits final bits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, and we'll all look forward to seeing them on uh, you know library shelves and home bookshelves in future so thank you very much and thank you very thank much you. everyone for watching and listening see you again <laughs>